we're giving them the right targets to aim their obedience at. And one of the things I'm convinced that all children need to learn is they need to learn to speak the truth. Speak the truth. Speaking the truth is a spiritual target that we all need to be aiming at. It is indeed a hard target to hit, and especially with consistency, but it's very, very important. And the reason it's important is because we're only as good as the words we speak. We're only as good as our word. Speaking truth pleases God. It also produces integrity. And, and where truth is not spoken, there are some serious spiritual integrity gaps. But integrity gaps are nothing new, are they? They've been around for a long time. They weren't there when mankind was first created, but they have existed ever since the fall of mankind into sin. The Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies and that he's the prince of this world. And what we don't realize is that we do live in a fallen world that is being led by a fallen angel whose world system is characterized by a lot of lies. God spoke through Jeremiah the prophet and he said, my people bend their tongue like bows to shoot lies. They refuse to stand up for truth and they only go from bad to worse. They care nothing about me, says the Lord. Beware of your neighbor, beware of your brother. They all take advantage of one another and spread their slanderous lies. They all fool and defraud each other. No one tells the truth. With practiced tongues, they tell lies. They wear themselves out with all their sinning. They pile lie upon lie and utterly refuse to come to me, says the Lord. What we don't realize is that we're all born into a sinful, fallen world. And sadly, no person that has lived has been able to live without telling a lie. Everybody in this room has lied. The only person that I know that never lied was Jesus Christ. He never sinned. David, who was a great man of God, but who also lied, said these words. He says, these wicked people are born sinners. Even from birth, they have lied and they've gone their own way. And David would have known that. MacArthur writes about this and he says, truth is so scarce that nearly everyone is suspect. Business people, advertisers, commentators, clerks, salesmen, lawyers, doctors, tradesmen, teachers, writers, politicians, and even many, if not most, preachers. Our whole society is largely built on a network of fabrication, of manufactured truth. We shade the truth, we cheat, we exaggerate, we misrepresent income tax deductions. We make promises that we have no intention of keeping. We make excuses, we betray confidence, all as a matter of normal, everyday living. So much business, so much of business, politics, government, and the education system, science, religion, and even family life is built on falsehood and, uh, and half-truths that a sudden revelation of the whole truth would cause society as we know it to disintegrate. It would be too devastating to handle. How many times as parents have we said to our children, just tell me the truth. We want the truth, but quite honestly, we can't handle the truth. You've heard that before. The last couple of weeks, I, I've said to you that our nation is in trouble. That's not a truth we want to hear. But our nation is in trouble, and there are a lot of reasons why we're in trouble. But one of the biggest reasons is that we have a leadership crisis. In our nation, we have a leadership crisis in our world, in, in, in our homes, and yes, in our churches. It's so hard to find leaders today who will tell you the truth. But it's been that way for a long time. Real leadership is in serious short supply today, even in America. And we have a lot of good leaders. The evidence, I think, of that was seen this week when President Trump, uh, his decision to select retired Marine General John Kelly as his new chief of staff. Good choice. Good choice. One commentator said that he will bring a fresh and and a fresh start and a new discipline to the administration, and I agree. 
It's amazing that he certainly wasted no time in firing White House Communication Director Anthony Scaramucci. That's a tough name, Scaramucci. If you say it a couple of times, you'll go to sleep thinking about that name. You can't get it off your mind. Scaramucci, Scaramucci, Scaramucci. He fired him after having only been on the job for 11 days. That's not a very long tenure. He was fired because the communication director had poor communication skills and even worse character. (laughs) Everywhere you look, good and godly character is needed, but it's absent. Again, MacArthur writes about this, saying that the problem is that we live in an era where the definition of character has become fuzzy. People bemoan the loss of integrity in general terms, but few have a clear idea what integrity entails anymore. Think about it. Moral standards have been systematically obliterated. Ours is the first society since the decaying Roman Empire to normalize homosexuality. We're living in the first generation in hundreds of years that has legalized abortion. Adultery and divorce are pandemic. Pornography is now an enormous industry and a major blight on the moral character of society. Virtually no clear moral or ethical standards are universally accepted anymore. No wonder principled, uncompromising personal integrity is so hard to find. We live in a tough world. But I'm standing before you today, and I want you to hear this from me. I believe there's still hope, and I am still optimistic. And you want to know why? Because my God is still on his throne. Nothing's changed. You and I are alive today. We're breathing. Our heart is beating. We're alive. The, The Lord has not come back and raptured the church, so there's still work to do. I am optimistic. We still have the word of God in our hands and we have the spirit of God in our hearts. And there is in this leadership vacuum a tremendous opportunity for change. Our world is screaming and crying out for leaders. Leaders who can be trusted. As one man said, we need leaders at every level of our society from political leaders in the international realm to spiritual leaders in the church and in the family. Folks, things can get better. They can. And I believe with the Lord's leading and working through each of us that we're in a period of unprecedented opportunity for the church if, if we're willing to make the most of the opportunity that God has given us. If we won't be distracted and so busy doing other things, but if we'll focus on kingdom work, God can change and God will change and he'll bring about revival that we sang about earlier. And maybe even a great awakening. There will not be an awakening in this nation until there's first revival in our churches. It's got to happen. Like the crying of a hungry, hungry infant, the leadership void is screaming to be filled. And if in each of us, in our own calling from the Lord, we step up and we stand in the gap and we lead, then, then this world, this nation, our community, Another family, a lost soul, can be ready to follow the right example, and they will. We can make a difference. We can, and we should. I like what MacArthur writes. He says, hostile times and adverse circumstances are no impediment to a true leader. In fact, great adversity can be turned into great advantage by the power of an influential leader. We need leaders. We need men and women who will stand and lead. You say, Brother Randy, how do you know that we can make a difference? Well, I know it because if God can do it in the past, he can do it in the present. I know that because he has raised up good and godly leaders at difficult times in the past, he can still do it today. And we can follow them and we can learn from them and we can emulate their example and we can lead. And all you have to do to know what God can do is open up your Bible and read. There's story after story after story of what God can do when people are willing. And today we're going to look at the 27th chapter of Acts you're going to see an example. It's a great place to look. And the Apostle Paul is a great example 
to look at and learn from. You'll probably not find a better example of leadership in, in any place than the Apostle Paul. As a leader, I would tell you, you know, we, we, our kids wear T-shirts with all kinds of superheroes, you know, Transformers and Spider-Man and Superman and Batman and all that kind of stuff. I want you to know that the Apostle Paul was a Christian hero and somebody that we need to we need to look at and learn from and then emulate their life. He was a true leader of the church if ever there was one. He was a, a shepherd of people. His leadership ability rose to the top just like, uh, you know, in bad situations, just like sweet cream on fresh milk. And he just always would rise and you would see him at work. His ability to lead, though, had nothing to do with his position. We think that people have to have a position to lead. Paul was never a political leader. He never ran for office, never held an office. He wasn't a strong, powerful military leader, never served in the military, never led military people into battle. He wasn't of royal blood, so he was no king and he was no prince, and yet he was a great leader. He was just simple, plain old Paul. He was given the role, no doubt, of the apostle or being an apostle, but outside the Christian community, that really didn't mean anything to the world, and yet he was a great leader. I want to show you this morning in the 27th chapter of Acts a story about a man who took charge of a situation in a hostile, secular environment when a lot of other people, men of power and men of stature and men of, of rank could have done differently, but they proved themselves to be unable and unwilling to lead, and yet Paul was willing to lead. What you're going to see is that Paul in this especially dangerous situation again was not a, a, a person of high ranking position or power. He, in the world's eyes he was a nobody. He was a prisoner bound for Rome where he was going to be in prison either for a long, long time, stuffed in a dungeon and forgot about, or else they were going to cut his head off, or possibly both. But from the bottom of the run, when most people fail, Paul himself proved to be a man of great influence. He was a man empowered by God to do a great work. And, and, I, and I would say to each and every one of us this morning, and we don't, we don't realize the amount of influence we have or the opportunity we have, if God could work through Paul, then he can work through you. You have a sphere of influence. There are people that are watching you. There are people that are around you. There are people that are pattering their life after what they see you do. And you may go, well, that's a small circle. Well, even if it's just one, you can make a difference in one. And then that one might make a difference in 10. And who knows where that will end? Let me set the stage so you understand where we're going to be in the 27th chapter. If you've read some of the previous chapters, you know that Paul was in trouble with the leadership there in Jerusalem. Paul was preaching the truth. He was talking a lot about Jesus because Jesus is truth. And the Jewish leaders didn't want to hear the name Jesus. They didn't want to hear the story of Jesus. They were tired of Jesus. And Paul had preached it so much that they were at a point where they were ready to, to kill him if they could possibly do that. And so because of God's protection and hand on Paul, God made sure that Paul was taken care of. And a, a Roman officer arrested Paul, put him in jail. That protected him. That kept his life from being taken out. While in jail, he was tried. And he appealed his case all the way to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. He wanted to be tried in Rome. So bound in chains, Paul began that long treacherous, dangerous journey as a prisoner to Rome. And the odds were against Paul even getting to Rome. Many thought he would never make it. And even if he did, most felt that his fleeting days of life would be of no consequence. But listen, what you're about to see this morning is that you can never underestimate what God can do through a willing, committed believer of Jesus Christ. It only takes that willingness and that commitment and giving yourself into the hands of God for him to produce something awesome and, and mighty. And that's what it happened. That's what happened in the Apostle Paul's life. If you got your Bibles, I want you to look. This is a lengthy passage, Acts 27, 
Beginning in verse 1, it says, When the time came, we set sail for Italy. We set sail for Italy. Travel arrangements had to be made to be able to transport Paul to Rome. Things were not as simple back then as they are now. There were no planes, there were no trains, just slow-moving boats. But then you got to understand that Paul's being moved to Rome was in God's timing. You also have to understand that it was according to his plan and his purpose and his promise. The very night that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, God gave Paul a very special promise. And it's found in Acts 23 verse 11 where Luke writes, That night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you, you told the people about me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome. You know, you can read that verse and just go right on by it real quick. But you got to look at the depth of what just happened. The Bible says that the Lord appeared to Paul. Jesus Christ in resurrected form appeared to him. Do you understand how special that is? That has only happened a couple of times and we only see it happening in scripture in a few places. That's awesome that he would do that. That's how important this was. But not only did he appear to him, but he spoke to him and he said, be encouraged. Can you imagine Jesus walking up and wrapping his arm around you and say, hey, it's gonna be okay. Don't worry about this, I got it. And he gave him a promise. You will preach in Rome. That's something that was Paul's passion. Rome was the epicenter of the world. And Paul figured if he could just get there and preach Jesus, then the, the gospel would spread. And that, was, that was God's plan. But then Paul and God thought a lot alike. Because Paul was interested in the agenda of God. And that was reaching the world for Christ. So you gotta, gotta just put all this in your mind and think about it. The promise meant that there was nothing that was going to keep Paul from getting to Rome. Nothing. <laughs> Nobody was gonna kill him. He wasn't going to drown. Nothing was gonna keep him from getting there. Can you understand the confidence that Paul had then and the peace of heart and rest of mind? He wasn't worried about anything. He had a promise for God, from God. And you know, so often those storms come in our life and we go, where's God? How many times have we prayed and waited for an answer and we didn't get it? Or we didn't get the one we wanted? And we go, well, where's he at? Is he on vacation? Is he asleep? Is he taking a nap? Is he too busy? Is he overloaded so much so that he can't get to me? No. He's already made a lot of promises to us folks that we overlook. You know, there's some things that we say, well, I just got to go pray about that. No, you don't. God's already told you what he's going to do in that situation. That's why you need to spend time in the Word of God so you know the promises of God. Does God keep his promises to us? Absolutely. Problem is, we don't know what promises he's made. I want us to look at what God did in Paul's life. Is God trustworthy? Absolutely. You're going to see it as we look into Scripture. If you're in 27th chapter of Acts, I want you to look at verse 2. It says, Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of an army officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. So, so Paul was an important prisoner. He's put in charge or put under the, the charge of Julius, a, a very important military officer. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thess Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a boat that was... Uh, whose home port was at Ramatham, it was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province of Asia. 
The next day when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul and, and let him go ashore to visit with friends so that they could provide for his needs. Putting out to sea from there, we encountered headwinds. In other words, they were sailing into the wind. And that made it very difficult to keep the ship on course. So we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. We passed along the coast of the provinces of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We landed in Myra near the province of Lycia. There the officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy and he put us on board. He said, we had several days of rough sailing. After a great difficulty, we finally neared Sindus. But the wind was against us. So we sailed down to the leeward side of Crete past the Cape of Salmon. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Haven near the city of Lycia. We had lost a lot of time, Paul said, or, or Luke writes. The weather was becoming dangerous for long voyages by then because it was so late in the fall. And Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Paul spoke. Why did Paul speak? Because Paul was a leader. The first thing I want to point out this morning is that the integrity gap can be bridged when you're committed to speaking the truth. Not lies, not half-truths, but truth. We live in a world that desperately needs the truth. And what did Paul say? In verse 10 it said, he said, Men, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, injury, Danger to our lives. He spoke truth. You know, there's a huge integrity gap between the truth and a lie. A lot of distance. Paul was a truthful person. That's what made him a great leader. Speaking truth is a choice that you can make. John Maxwell says the choices we make nearly always reflect our true character. You're going to act from who you are. You're going to speak from who you are. Now, I'm convinced at this point that Paul was really using common sense here. Paul simply stated, there is trouble ahead. He was saying, if we choose to go on from this place, we're going to encounter trouble up ahead. Paul knew that they were sailing late in the fall. Paul had sailed before. He knew when to sail and when not to sail. This wasn't his first rodeo. He wasn't a master sailor, but he'd been on ships before. He could see that the weather was steadily getting worse, and he already would notice that they were struggling and they were losing time. They were falling behind in their schedule. You see, Paul had enough sense to see the danger that was ahead. That's what good leadership does. Good leaders can see and discern what might be coming down the road or across the sea, and they speak up. They don't just ignore it. They don't kick the can down the road. They deal with it. They look at it. They start making sensible plans. They develop strategies to avert danger so lives can be saved. And most of all, they speak the truth. And that's exactly what Paul did. That's what good leaders do. They speak truth. Now, when I was thinking about that, this verse of scripture in Matthew, and that's where we're at, came to my mind. This is some words that, these are some words that Jesus spoke about telling the truth. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to our people long ago, don't break your promises, but keep the promises you make to the Lord. In other words, if you promise God you're going to do something, you, you best do it. Don't renege on it. But then Jesus says something else. In verse 34, he said, I tell you, Never swear an oath. Don't swear an oath using the name of heaven because heaven is God's throne. Don't swear an oath using the name of earth because the earth belongs to God. Don't swear an oath using the name of Jerusalem because that is the city of the great king. And don't even swear by your own head because you cannot make one hair on your head become white or black. You can't put them back in either. And you know, it's just when they're gone, they're gone. But anyway, he said in verse 37, this sums it up, verse 37, 
Say only yes if you mean yes and no if you mean no. If you say more than yes or no, it is from the evil one. In other words, if you have to elaborate and you have to stretch it, The main point that Jesus is trying to make with this passage of Scripture is that we're to be the kind of people that don't have to take an oath when we speak to validate what we say. In other words, if you make a statement, you don't have to say, I swear to you that's the truth. Or I promise you on a stack of, as, 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 as J. Vernon McGee says, when a man says, I swear on a stack of Bibles of my high, mile high, that's the fellow you don't need to believe because his lie that he's telling you is a mile high. MacArthur writes, individual men are inclined to the truth only when it benefits them. Yet collectively they have always known something of the importance of, uh, uh, of the importance and rightfulness even outside the court of law. The great Roman orator Cicero said, truth is the highest thing that a man may experience. Trouble is most of us never experience truth. That's out of our realm. We don't go there or else we experience it infrequently in our life, only here and there, every now and then. Daniel Webster said, there's nothing as powerful as truth, often and often nothing as strange. Would we know truth if we saw it? I, I've said many times to people throughout my pastorates, I know there's a truth out there if we can just get to it. We need to speak the simple truth, not half-truths, not the exaggerated truth. We don't have to embellish on what we say. Just, just speak truth. Just speak truth. Now, honestly, that's a hard thing for us to do. And you want me to tell you why? I'm going to show you why. Let me, let me do that. James chapter 3, verse 2. James was a... a a, a, a man who knew something about this. He said, we all make many mistakes, but those who control their tongue can also control themselves in every other way. In verse five, he says, the tongue is a small thing and what enormous damage it can do. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is full of wickedness that can ruin your whole life. It can turn the entire course of your life into a blazing flame of destruction for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an uncontrollable evil full of deadly poison. Jesus said, but evil words come from an evil heart. I used to say, and I say it to you this morning, garbage in, garbage out. What you feed yourself is what you're going to bring out of your, you know, what's on the inside comes back out. He said, for from the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and all other sexual immorality, theft and lying and slander. What's interesting is that Jesus would categorize lying and slander in the same place where he talks about murder and adultery and sexual immorality. He said, these are what defile you. Defile. Only God can control the tongue and only in the person who gives himself fully to the Lord and the control of the Lord. Well, Paul was that kind of man and he spoke the truth. We're in trouble if we sail ahead. But it says in verse 11, the officer in charge of the prisoners, that would have been Julius, listened more to the, captain's ship, or the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. And since Fairhaven was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a, a southwest and a northwest exposure. So when Paul spoke the truth, not everybody listened. But he didn't change his statement. And he didn't say, I promise you if we go ahead, you're going to 
have a lot of trouble. He just said, there's trouble ahead. Spoke the truth, simple truth. He spoke the truth, and with time, what you're going to see is that they began to, to realize that, you know, what he said was true, and it was proven to be true, and people took notice, and then they wanted to follow Paul. There's, there's something else I want to point out beginning in verse 13, and that is that the integrity gap can also be bridged when you're willing to live your life by what you speak, by the truth that you speak. If you look with me at verse 13, it says, when a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought that they could make it. They were being sailors. They thought that they could move on ahead and everything was going to be okay. So they pulled up the anchor and sailed along the coast uh, or along close to shore. But the weather changed abruptly and the wind of a typhoon strength, a nor'easter they called it, caught the ship uh, caught the ship and blew it out to sea. They couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. They just quit trying to fight it and said, let the wind blow us where, we want to go, where, where it wants to take us. In verse 16, it says, we sailed behind a small island named Cauda, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat that was being towed from behind us. Now, if you know anything about sailing sometimes, or even other boats, they'll, especially if you're in a, on a dive boat, they'll, they'll put something behind you, a, a, a raft or an inner tube or a boat, so that if by chance you fall off ship, you can maybe catch a hold of that and, and get on board and, and save your life. Back, they didn't have life jackets back then. They didn't have a, a way of knowing how or where you might be located. There were no beacons that they could trace you and then find you. In fact, I heard the other day, just this week, there was a, a sailor fell off a ship and they ain't found him yet. It's hard to be found at sea. That's why they were dragging that boat behind their big boat. Notice he goes on to say that uh, things were getting so bad. He said the weather changed and and so they gave up and they let it run. We sailed. Uh, they, they finally pulled the lifeboat into the boat. He said in verse 17, then we banded the ship with ropes to strengthen the hull. They ran ropes around the boat and tied them off, hoping to hold the boat together to keep it from coming apart. The sailors were afraid of being driven across the sandbar of Citrus and off the, off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor and were thus driven before the wind. The next day, it says, uh, as gale force winds uh, continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. They're lightening the load. Paul said that's going to happen. It started happening right then. The following day, they even threw out the ship's equipment. Anything that was heavy, they began throwing overboard, even if they might need it. And anything else they could lay their hands on. But it says in verse 20, the terrible storm raged unabated for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. I have never been in a situation where all hope was gone. So it's hard for me to imagine what they were experiencing but these people thought they were about to die. It sounds like that all 276 people that were on board that ship, out of all of them, there was only one person that had hope. Who do you reckon that one person was? It was Paul. Why, was he, why did he have hope? Because he was thinking about the promise that God made to him. He hadn't forgot that. He knew where he was going. He knew he was in control of his life. Now look with me at verse 21. Notice it says, no one had eaten for a long time. Why? Because all hope was lost. Why eat when you're going to die? So they were desperate. And it says, finally, Paul called the crew together. It's interesting to me that it wasn't the captain that called them together. It's interesting that it wasn't the owner of the ship that called them together. And neither was it the Roman soldier, the officer that was in charge of the prisoners. He didn't call them together. These men weren't doing anything. They had positions. They were men of power 
And they weren't doing a thing. And Paul, a prisoner, called the crew together and he said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Fair Haven. You would have avoided all of this injury and loss, but take courage. None of you will lose your lives. He's talking to people that thought they were about to die. He says, none of you are going to lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. Oh, the ship's going to sink. Well, how are we going to stay alive if the ship gets out from underneath of us? He tells them in verse 23, he says, last night an angel of of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. (laughs) Jesus has been to see Paul and now an angel comes to see Paul and, and the angel said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's he doing? He's reminding him of the promise. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, Paul says, for I believe God. And it will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. Paul's faith was strong. It was rooted in a relationship that he had with Jesus Christ. And he trusted God for everything. He trusted everything God told him. And he didn't forget it. He took it to heart. Paul, in turn, spoke the truth that he had heard from the Lord But he also lived according to what he believed. And what's interesting is others noticed. And that's the third point in this message. You see, the integrity gap can be bridged when the lost world is able to see and recognize real truth and integrity in action. When they can see us living what we believe, it can make a difference. That's what verse 27 reminds us of. It says, about midnight on the 14th night of the storm. Now you think about that. I've gone through a lot of hurricanes being in Florida most of my life. We've had our share here in Virginia, North Carolina, right? How how long does a, a, a hurricane usually last? Three, maybe four days, five days at the max? It says this storm's going on 14 days. How long has the storm been going on in your life? The one that I can't see. The one that the people next to you don't know about. You see, some of us have been battling a storm for years. And until we back up and think about the promises of God, that storm is not going away. 14 days, Paul and those other people on that ship struggled. It says, as we were being driven across the sea at Rhea, the sailors sensed land was near, so they took soundings and they found the water was only 120 feet deep. That's deep, folks. (laughs) But you got to think about this. They're worried about being on to land too quick. Says a little later, they sounded again and found only 90 feet, so they're getting in shallower water. At this rate, they were afraid that we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the stern and they prayed for daylight. Do you think Paul's having any influence on their lives? These were secular people that are now praying. <laughs> What do you think Paul's been doing while they've been frantically running around? I think Paul was over there praying. And because Paul prayed, maybe they prayed. He was rubbing off on them. There was an influence there. But notice that not everybody was watching Paul. Not everybody was doing what Paul maybe had been doing. It says then in verse 30, then the sailors tried to abandon ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul saw. We discussed this the other night, Friday night, with our young adult uh, gathering, our young couples. We were talking about praying. What's the posture of prayer? Do you always have to bow your head and close your eyes? 
No. You can pray with your eyes open. And I think Paul was praying with his eyes open. I think, if, I think Paul was praying without ceasing. And he saw them lower the lifeboat and he knew what they were about to do. He knew they weren't listening and he knew they were fixing to try to get off that boat and try to go to safety. And look at what Paul says. He said, Paul said to the commanding officer, to Julius and the soldiers. Now, the, the army's staying, but the Navy's leaving. <laughs> he said, you will all die unless the sailors stay on board. We need those guys. They know how to sail this ship. We're not through yet. We still have some sailing to do. It says, so the soldiers cut the ropes and let the boat fall off. Folks, they were listening to Paul, some of them. His integrity points in the bank were growing. It says in verse 33, as the darkness gave way, to the early morning light, Paul begged everyone to eat. He said, you haven't touched food for two weeks. Now, notice that, again, the, the captain of the ship didn't say eat. The owner of the boat didn't say eat. The, the, the military leader didn't say eat. Paul said eat. He's a prisoner. He said, please eat some, something now for your own good, for not a hair of your head's going to perish. He, what's he doing? He's giving them hope. But not only does he give them hope, Paul lives in that hope. It says in verse 35 that he took some bread and he gave thanks to God before them all and he broke off a piece and he ate it. Paul's saying, do what I'm doing. And it says, then everyone was encouraged. And all 276 of us began eating, for that is the number we had on board. After eating, the crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard, there's nothing left on that boat. It's a bare boards boat now. He said when morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they saw a bay and, they, and, and, and with, with a beach, and they wondered if they could get between the rocks and get the ship safely to shore. The, 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 the Navy still thinks they can make it. So they cut off the anchors and they left them in the sea and they lowered the rudders and they raised the foresail and they headed toward shore. But the ship hit a shoal and ran aground and the bow was stuck fast. And when the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and it began to break apart, the ship was disintegrating on that shoal. Well, it says in verse 42 that the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure that they didn't swim ashore and escape. You see, those soldiers were being responsible for the prisoners that they were supposed to make sure they delivered to the right place. And they weren't going to let them get away because they knew if they escaped, then they would themselves be in danger of losing their life because they had to replace the prisoner with their own life. But notice verse 43. This is a very important verse. It said, the commanding officer, Julius, the man put in charge of Paul's life, wanted to spare him. Why? Because Paul was of value. Everything Paul has said thus far has happened. You know, we've lost all the cargo, the, the, the ship's fixing to sink. You know, we've lost everything. But Paul did say, we're not going to die, even though the ship goes down. So maybe we need to keep Paul around. So he didn't let them carry out their plan then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And he told the others to try for it on planks, boards, anything that would float, debris from the broken ship. And the last thing that's said here is so everyone escaped safely ashore. Everyone. 276 people. They all jumped in the water and the waves that were destroying their ship. Who in their right mind would do such a thing? And they all made it safe, safely to shore. Who would have bet that that could have happened? I doubt anybody would have taken a bet. The odds were certainly beyond comprehension, and they were against them. Can you imagine what those men thought when they crawled up on that beach? You ever, you ever wanted to... Touch a piece of ground so much so that when you got there, you bent down and you kissed it. I bet they were kissing the beach. Ha! <sighs> it's good to be safe. 
I bet they also thought about Paul. Where's Paul at? Hey, he knew what he was talking about. He can be trusted. He spoke words of truth and everything Paul said happened. Oh, and by the way, if Paul told us the truth, maybe his God is real. Maybe we can trust him as well. Paul proved himself to be a great leader. Someone said, tested in the crucible of crisis, he stepped up, he stood in the gap, and he showed us how a true leader acts. Paul was determined. He trusted in God. He looked at the situation with a calm spirit and a, and a level mind. He was responsible. He took control when things seemed to be out of control. He refused to compromise and he refused to be distracted. And he delivered. And you know what? God honored Paul's effort with amazing success. All 276 people made it safely to shore. And eventually Paul would make it to Rome where God promised him he would be. I, I said earlier this week that you're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, are about to enter one. Life is full of storms, is it not? They come in all shapes and sizes. Some can be seen visibly, some cannot. Sometimes they last more than 14 days. Sometimes they're life-threatening storms. Most of the time, and, and, and I'm guilty of this, most of the time when a storm comes, I try to deal with it. I try to handle it myself. I don't know about you ladies, but that's a man thing. But what does God want us to do when a storm comes? Give it to him and trust him. And there are some of you that have been running with your storm too long. You've been, been, carrying by, been being carried by the winds of the storm and you're letting that storm blow you just wherever it wants to blow you. And you need to stop. And you need to have a little conversation with Jesus and you need to give it to him. And you need to trust him in the midst of your storm. The question is, are you going to do that? All I'm here is, I'm a messenger. I, I can't fix your storm, but I can tell you who can. The question is, will you do that? Well, what I do, Pastor? Well, I think you need to have a come to Jesus meeting and you need to spend some time with the Lord and you need to realize where you're at and who can help you and, and talk to him about it. How much of our life is lived without us ever talking to God about our storms or about life? We wear these things out and not our knees. You don't need this to talk to Jesus. And sometimes you can't get through on these things. Sometimes your, your connection gets dropped. But when you talk to the Lord and you're serious, he always listens and he always answers. And he can be trusted. Will you take your storm to the Lord today? Will you leave it here with him? Because you got two options. You either leave it, leave it here with him or you take it home with you. You'll keep battling your storm until you put Jesus in the middle of it. Some of us need to give our storm to the Lord today. But there are also some of us that maybe 
aren't in the storm. We've come out of the storm, and it's yet going to be a little while before we enter another storm. And we're, we're, uh, we're seasoned veterans of storms. And some of us know how to help other people through their storm. Because you see, the Lord sometimes does miracles, but other times, and most of the time, he works through us. And, and there are some people here today that know how to help you through storms. But for that to happen, then we have to be willing to step up and be someone who does help people through storms. We've got to make ourselves available to people. We need to pray for them. But we also need to invest in their lives. Maybe God has pointed somebody out that you need to do that for. Or you need to be there for them. Will you make that kind of commitment today? Will you give your storm to the Lord? Will you be someone who helps others with storms? How will you respond to this message today and what will God do in your life? And How, how will he change you? See, that's what this is all about. Let's pray. Father, a lot's been said. Now a lot needs to happen. Lord, I ask that you set people free from their storm. I know storms are necessary, and I know they sometimes are even divine. God, help us to trust you in the midst of our storm so we can learn the things that we need to learn and so that we can grow closer to you, so that we can be shaped into the person you've created us to be. Lord, help us to trust. Help us to trust you. And there's no better time to do that than in the midst of a storm. Father, I also pray for people who are seasoned veterans of storms, Christians who are mature, who can help others go through storms. Help us to be committed to do that. Lord, this is your invitation. It's about what you're doing in people's lives. Every individual here today is important to you and there's a reason why each and every one of us are here. There's something, God, in every one of us you want to do. Something that you want to adjust or change. Please, Lord, help us to be willing vessels for the power of God to work on us and through us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We respond to the Lord, please. For his glory and for your good, you come as God leads.